Um, so one of my favorite movies is, uh, it's called Amadeus. And uh, maybe some of you have heard of the movie Amadeus. It's about the life of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. And uh, it's one of my favorite movies because I was classically, I was a classically trained violinist and a pianist. And uh, I grew up absolutely adoring his music, loving Mozart. And he was a fascinating man. Maybe you've heard about Mozart, you've uh, read about him, or you've watched the movie Amadeus. If you Google uh, Amadeus today, this morning, or not this morning, put your phones away. This afternoon, if you Google Amadeus Mozart, you will get over 88 million hits. Okay, so that's how popular he is. He was a uh, musical genius. He wrote his first piece at the age of five. He wrote his first full symphony at the age of eight. And he wrote his first full opera at the age of 14. Okay. So he was extremely prolific as well. He composed over 600 pieces in just 35 years. Now, I'm 35 years old, and I think I've composed maybe half of a worship song in my life. And it was really bad, too. No one's going to sing my song. But do you know about Mozart's dark side? Do you know that Mozart had a dark, dark side? If you watched Amadeus, you, uh, you've probably seen a little bit of that. He was likely an alcoholic. He was uh, depressed one minute, and then he would feverishly be driven and compose music the next minute. His marriage was in shambles. He was constantly seeking the approval of his father, which hardly ever came. He was horrible with his money, constantly in debt most of his adult life. In the Austrian court, he was equally known for his crude humor and childish ways as he was known for his exquisite music. So that's Mozart for you. And he died at the age of 35, a broken, discouraged, somewhat depressed man. And what was his immediate legacy? Well, it was an embittered, pregnant wife with a mound of debt. That's Mozart. Extraordinarily brilliant, and extraordinarily broken. Does that sound familiar? Well, it shouldn't. Because uh, none of us have Mozart's capacities, right? None of us have Mozart's capacities, but he does give us an exaggerated picture of all of us, all of humanity. We are gods and monsters. All of us. Lowercase g, of course. We are people with uncanny, God-given creativity and ability and drive. Absolutely. But we are also people with uncanny tendencies to be and do the worst of things. We're able to reach the heights of splendor and accomplish massive things. And we're able to reach the depths of darkness as well. We're all little Mozarts running around this world, trying to do astonishing things all the while carelessly Messing things up. Sometimes we're impressed with the things we do, right? Sometimes we do really impressive things. We accomplish big things, even big things for God. But other times we are taken aback by our failures, the evil in our heart, the weakness in our heart and lives. We wonder sometimes, why am I back to the same destructive patterns of behavior? Why am I back to these same sins, these same weaknesses? 
That's where we find ourselves sometimes. I was reading uh, some news online this past week. And this past week, NASA scientists, you may have read about this, NASA scientists released the first ever close-up pictures of Pluto. And it was taken from the spacecraft New Horizons, okay? This spacecraft is the fastest spaceship ever built. It's been traveling for, get this, nine years, three billion miles to get to Pluto. That's how far our technology has advanced. And in the same week that that happened, America was bombarded through social media with a disturbing video from Planned Parenthood that maybe some of you have seen. How do you explain that? How do you explain this? If you're uh, sitting here and you're a, uh, a Christian, Christian, then you, you may be able to answer that question. But if you're sitting in this pew this morning and you consider yourself a skeptic of the Christian faith, maybe you're exploring Christianity, well, first of all, welcome. And you know, I'm guessing you are asking the same questions about yourself and about the people in your life that we are asking this morning. You probably see just a little Mozart in yourself, just like I see a little Mozart in myself. And I'm guessing it's hard for you to figure it out, just like it's hard for us to figure it out. So how do you make sense of this tension? How do we reconcile this tension? Well, this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 8. So if you want to turn to Psalm 8, and Psalm 8 is going to slowly help us build a comprehensive anthropology. It's going to help us answer some questions about ourselves, Like, who are we exactly? Why are we such a mixed bag? And, of course, what can we do about all of this? Psalm 8, we're beginning a 10-week series in the book of Psalms. Okay, let me read Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds, and the beasts of the field, and the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Father, we um, come before you this morning. And we ask that you would help us not to just understand the truths in this psalm, but I pray that you would help us to exalt in them. You would help us to worship you through them. You would take us, Lord, into a different place where we can see you, where we can experience your glory and majesty. Father, would you do us do that for us? Would you give us a glimpse, Lord, of the glory that is to come this morning? We so desperately need to hear from you this morning. Would you speak in Jesus' name? Amen. So what I want to show you from this passage is three pillars of Christian anthropology. Three truths about humanity. 
from this passage, okay? Here's the, the first truth. It's we are worshipers. And we see that in verses 1 and 2, and then finally in verse 9. 1 and 2, and then verse 9. Notice that this hymn of praise opens and closes with the same refrain. How majestic is your name in all of the earth. Now this tells us that before we jump, jump into talking about who we are, we've got to start to think about and understand who God is. Right? This reminds me of what John Calvin said in his great Institutes of the Christian Religion. This is how he began his magnum opus. He says, Man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and from that place descends to scrutinize himself. Now, I wonder whether Calvin was meditating on this psalm when he wrote those words, because that is exactly the path that David takes us through in this psalm. So the first thing we learn is that God has filled the earth, filled the heavens with his majestic name. It's another way of saying his majestic character and reputation. And filled the heavens with his glory. He's saying, great God, you are our Lord. Great God, you are our Lord. It's like David is worshiping God because his grandness, his transcendence is accessible to us. O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This name, this character, this reputation, this glory, he says, is spread throughout the earth and the heavens. Now, some people may not acknowledge the authority of his name in this place, but it's still out there for us to experience. Everywhere we look, we see the sights and sounds of God's majesty and glory. There's no place where his glory and majesty is hidden from us. Think with me. Whether it's whether you're sitting watching a beautiful sunset over the ocean vista, whether you're encountering God's glory as you see the birth of your child, whether you're sitting on your front porch and you're feeling the power of a booming thunderstorm, whether you're sitting here in these pews and you're worshiping and listening for God's voice and you're praying together as God's people. God's majestic name and glory is throughout the earth. The question is, of course, are we seeing it? Do we acknowledge it? Are we submitting ourselves to it? And most importantly, are we marveling and worshiping God for it? As David is doing here in this psalm. We learn something else about God's majestic name in verse 2. Let me read verse 2 for you. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. So what David is saying here is God's majesty is also seen in the surprising and sometimes upside-down ways he takes out his enemies. He uses baby talk to overcome his enemies. He uses the weakest, the simplest people to overthrow the strongest and most powerful entities in this world. That's how he rolls. That's what he does. There's lots of examples of this in Scripture in our lives, too. Uh, think about Moses. Moses couldn't speak very well. God plucked him out of the lands, and he took him back to Egypt, and he used Moses, this inarticulate guy, to rescue his people, Israel. Think about um, David. 
the young shepherd boy, the weak young shepherd boy who kills Goliath and overcomes the Philistines. And then God establishes his throne, which will one day lead to Jesus. Think about the Apostle Paul. We've just been studying the book of Acts, and we've seen how this weak man, this guy who, according to the Corinthians, he couldn't speak very well. And yet God used his preaching to not only save thousands of people in Asia and Europe, but to establish lasting churches through his preaching. But you know, um, you know who else I think about when I read verse 2? I think about a dairy farmer from North Carolina. Any guesses who I'm thinking about? I'm thinking about Billy Graham. Everybody thought Billy Graham would amount to just about nothing. He's a dairy farmer. He had a basic education. You know, his, his fellow evangelists were, on paper, much more accomplished and, and much more successful and gifted than he was. From a purely human perspective, from a purely worldly perspective, he should not have succeeded at all. But God said, I'm going to use this little baby to establish my praise and strength. I'm going to use this little infant to overthrow my enemies and bring people from darkness to light. And he gave Billy Graham, as you know, such a megaphone, such a, such a huge platform to proclaim Christ to thousands of people all over the world. Thousands of people who would become Christians through his ministry. Maybe even some of you here. I wonder. So do you feel like a nobody? Do you feel like a nobody? Well, perfect. It's a good place for you to be. Because God is in the business of using nobodies to display His majesty. God is in the business of using uh, your little nobody voice to, to uh, display and His majesty and overcome His enemies. That's how He rolls. So if you're a nobody, I hope you're encouraged this morning. So what do these first two verses tell us about humanity? Well, we're made to worship. We are made to be in awe. We were made to enjoy something bigger than ourselves, something more transcendent, something more resplendent than us. So humanity only makes sense when we relate to God like the earth relates to the sun. We orbit around his world. When we put ourselves in that central position or we put something else in that central position, well, we're going to feel out of sorts. We no longer make sense. So in other words, you are most human, you are most yourself when you are worshiping God. And you are least human, you are least like yourself when you stop worshiping God. So that's the first pillar. Here's the second pillar. Verses 3 and 4. The one we worship cares for us. The one we worship cares for us. Here's verse 3. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You know, you can picture David as a young shepherd boy laying on his back in the middle of a clear Palestinian night. In night skies in that region, the world are often crystal clear, especially when you get out in the fields. And so David probably remembered one of those evenings when he wrote these words. You know, one of my fondest memories was uh, back in Michigan, sitting uh, on some dunes in Traverse City. 
and um, right, right in front of a host of stars and uh, stargazing for hours. You know, nothing makes you feel so small as when you sit down, lay on your back, and you take in the night sky. And you consider, like David, what you're seeing. Have you done that before? Have you laid back and have you considered what you are seeing? Well, let me help us consider this morning. Here's some perspective. Our little home subdivision of the universe, the Milky Way galaxy, has about 100 billion stars. 100 billion stars. And the universe, the whole universe, contains, according to scientists, tens of billions of galaxies. Tens of billions of Milky Way galaxies. Okay? And so, scientists estimate at least 10 billion trillion stars in the universe, in the known universe. So that's one with 21 zeros after it. Now, according to verse 3, God has set each of these 10 billion trillion stars in place. According to Psalm 147, God even calls each of these stars by name. 10 billion trillion star names. Now David's words here in verse 3 picture God using his fingers to build these massive, massive balls of gas, right? Like little children playing with little blocks, God builds these stars. Now think about the normal, simple things we do with our fingers and hands. We write emails. We pull weeds. We write in, uh, you know, we, we pat our dogs. We, we pull out, uh, I already said we pull out weeds. We grab a hot dog. We go to a cookout and we grab a hot dog. There's all sorts of things we do with our hands. And what David is saying here is creating the universe is that easy for God. It's that simple for God. And somewhere in this vast universe in which God calls out 10 billion trillion stars by name, you and I are situated on a tiny planet called Earth. And we're chewing our fingernails and we're worrying about our farmer's tents. It's so strange, isn't it? We are so small. We are so inconsequential. We're so trivial. When you line us up to 10 billion trillion stars, what can we offer this great God? What can we contribute to this vast universe? Why in the world would God ever care about you and me? Well, according to verse 4, He does. He does care. God isn't just mindful of every star and planet. He is mindful of tiny little you and tiny little me. God not only calls every star by name, but he calls every one of us by name. He gives us special attention. He takes special notice of us. He knows us. He loves us. He turns his gaze from these stars that go supernova billions and trillions of miles away that we will never know about. He turns his gaze from them to wipe our snotty little noses, to carry us out of the destructive pits that we have created for ourselves and to put us on firm ground. This is our God. This is our God. He is transcendent. He is glorious. He is majestic. He is above us. 
And yet he has chosen to condescend to accommodate himself to us and to communicate his love for us, to be intimate with us. This is our God. And we ought to praise him for this. Donna Tierney, she's a self-proclaimed atheist. She wrote an intriguing New York Times piece just a few years back about her son, about 10 years ago. And her son, uh, her son, when he was four, started praying to God. And she was shocked because her and her husband are atheists. And uh, this, the, these prayers to God started, uh, turned into questions about God, and these questions about God turned into, uh, you know, real faith in God. And Donna and her husband had no idea what to do with their son. And so she writes this article about her son, and in this article she describes the difference between how Christians and non-Christians view the world. Listen to what she says. When Christians walk along a stream, they don't just see water falling over rocks. The sight fills them with ecstasy. They see a realm of hope beyond this world. Now, I just see a babbling brook. I don't see anything more. Now, if you're an atheist or a skeptic here this morning, then maybe Tierney's words make sense to you. Maybe that's, that's what you think too. That's what you feel too. Some of you may be thinking the same thought Carl Sagan once had, the great atheist, the scientist who wrote the book Cosmos. Listen to what he says. He said, the universe is all there is, all there ever was, and all there ever will be. Sagan, this diehard atheist and scientist, he didn't have a grand story to orient his life. There was no God, there was no meaning in his life, only the simple scientific exploration of the cosmos. In his novel, Contact, which got turned into a movie in, I think, the late 90s, uh, one of the characters, a priest, ironically, asks uh, the, the protagonist scientist, you know, they're, they're actually laying, I think they're laying down, they're looking at the stars, so the, the priest asked the scientists, you think there's any life up there? And the scientist responds, I don't know. But if there isn't, it's an awful waste of space. But do you hear what's behind that? Sagan believed that space must contain other life forms simply because of its sheer vastness. Simply because it's, it's massive and beautiful, there must be other life forms out there. That's as far as Sagan's worldview could take him. But Psalm 8 tells us something different, doesn't it? What if God created this vast universe simply to display his majesty? What if God created this massive, beautiful universe simply to get us to where David is trying to get us to in Psalm 8. This great, majestic, glorious God takes notice of me? Wow. What if that's why the universe exists? So this is the first pillar, of, or excuse me, this is the second pillar of Christian anthropology. The one we worship cares for us. The first pillar to review is we are worshipers. If you want to know who you are, then you need to start with these two ideas. But there's one more. The one we worship gives us dignity and dominion. Look at verses 5 through 8 with me. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds, 
and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Notice first in verse 5, we are crowned with glory and honor. Now, glory and honor here is probably referring to us being made in God's image. So David is pulling from Genesis chapter 1. Bearing God's image means that we have a special status amongst God's creation. With humans, there's something different, right? There's, there's something special. There's something worthy of honor. So as you um, walk through your week this week, as you encounter a coworker or talk to a neighbor or as you, uh, you know, hang out with someone on your play dates, as you go to, I was going to say go to school, but nobody's in school anymore, really. Forget school. But as you do these things, every person you run into has been crowned with glory and honor. Every person you encounter. Now that's a really high honor and privilege, isn't it? Especially in view of a culture that doesn't prize different kinds of people. Psalm 8 really pushes us. Verse 5 really pushes us to value and care for all different kinds of people. And so, yes, black lives do matter. The lives of aborted babies matter. The lives of girls trapped in sex trafficking matter. The lives of abused and battered women matter. The lives of bullied evangelicals matter. The lives of bullied homosexuals matter. This is what verse 5 teaches us. Every human being, regardless of how sin has tainted, corrupted, whatever, every human being is, in, is created in God's image. And therefore, we ought to take special notice of them, regardless of how sin has impacted their lives. Now, verse 6 through 8 explains this special status more clearly. As God's image bearers, we are given rule and dominion over this world. This comes also right out of Genesis 1. So you remember after he created uh, Adam and Eve in his image, he said, be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth, have dominion over the creation. And that's kind of what he's talking about here. We rule on God's behalf. We're kind of like vice regents of a great king. Wherever we go, we bring God's authority. Wherever we go, we rule on God's behalf. So we rule over the created order. Now this makes sense. This absolutely makes sense. You don't see any fish fishing for men. You're not going to go home this afternoon to a cookout. You're not going to worry about a cow coming to hunt you. No, instead you're going to eat some grilled cow that somebody killed because we govern the animal kingdom. Can I get an amen? Right? We govern the animal kingdom. So there it is, three pillars of Christian anthropology. This is who we are. We are worshipers. The one we worship cares for us, and the one we worship has given us the special status and the special task. Sounds really good. But we're all little Mozarts. How do we make sense of that? Well, Adam and Eve failed to do this, failed to live out of these three truths. They fail when they didn't rule over the animal kingdom, when they submitted themselves to a snake. They went their own way and then sin entered the world. Now these three pillars were also God's plan for Israel. It's why David wrote this psalm. He wanted to help his people, Israel, 
embody these truths. They were called to be worshipers of God. They were called to enjoy and rest in God's love and care for them. They were called to live out of their dignity and rule the earth on God's behalf and spread his fame. That was Israel's calling. But if you read the Old Testament, you know they failed. They failed to do that. Instead of worshiping God, they worshiped idols. They, lived out, they didn't live out of their status as God's chosen people. They walked their own way. Just like Adam and Eve. And of course, we're no different. We are no different. We too have failed to worship God the way we should. We worship tons and tons of different idols. Idols of our hearts. We too have failed to rest in and enjoy God's love and care for us. Instead, we refuse God's love or belittle God's love or downplay God's love and we run after lesser loves. Loves that will never satisfy us. And we don't rule in the way God wants us to. We don't rule for his glory. We rule the earth on our terms and for our own glory. And so, yeah, we we are all little Mozarts given such beautiful honors and wonderful capacities, but all of it misused, all of it wasted because all of us are sinners. Thankfully, this isn't the end of the story. I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, it's page 1,185 in your Bibles. Hebrews chapter 2, I want to show you the New Testament fulfillment of this psalm. Whenever you read an Old Testament passage, you want to ask the question, how does this Old Testament passage anticipate or point forward to Jesus? And uh, in this case, we have a New Testament passage that answers that question. So we're lucky. Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 5. It is not to the angels that he, God, has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, there's a whole lot in these few verses, and I uh, I don't have time to unpack it all, but I, I want to just point out really one thing. Hebrews 2 teaches us that where we failed, Jesus succeeded. Where we failed, Jesus was successful. Jesus worshipped the way we ought to have worshipped. He ruled the way we ought to have ruled. He spread God's majestic name throughout the earth. He is the Son of Man. He is God's perfect image. And after suffering on the cross for sinners, he was given honor and glory. He was given rule over all things. He is now seating at the right hand of God in power. He's tasted death for everyone. He's tasted the death that we deserve because of our sin. So Jesus has accomplished 
what we could not. This is the gospel. This is the good news right here for all of us. If you're not a Christian, then I hope you're hearing the message that Donna Tierney and Carl Sagan refuse to listen to. You know, and if, if rocks and mountains and sunsets, if they don't create in you awe and wonder and push you towards God, then I hope that you will consider this guy, Jesus. I hope you will focus on this man, this God, Jesus. I hope you stand in awe of him as you consider him because he's the one who isn't a God and a monster. He is God alone and he rules over all monsters, including you and me. And he's the only one that can take us from the mess that we have made for ourselves and restore us to something beautiful. Jesus, he's done it. So would you repent of your sins? Would you trust in Jesus for your salvation today? I'm going to ask you not to delay that decision. Would you do it today? Would today be the day of your faith in Christ? So you want to be a true human and you want to avoid being a little Mozart for the rest of your life? Worship Jesus. Worship Jesus. Enjoy his love for you. And then finally, rule and steward and work and love on his behalf and for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for this man, this God, this Jesus, who we ought to be in awe of. And Father, we confess to you that we, our, our spiritual nerve endings are oftentimes numb when we hear his name. Father, would you do something there? Would you help us to be in awe of Jesus? Would you help us not lose our awe and wonder as we consider him? And Father, I pray for those that are here that do not know you. I pray that they would. I pray that you would work in their hearts even now and give them faith, give them new life in your son, Jesus. Help them to see him for who he is. I pray that you would help them to repent of their sins and find new life, new hope, new joy in your son, Jesus. Father, I pray for the rest of us that have given ourselves to you. Father, I pray that you'd help us to grow in our faith. I pray that you'd help us to constantly be in awe of Jesus. Would you help us to enjoy your love? And then on your behalf, would you help us to rule this world until you come back, and until your kingdom is this kingdom here on earth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.